Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Happy summer solstice, everyone. Things are heating up where I live, and I hope they are warming up in your area, too. We have some crazy weather slated for the Washington, D.C. metro area this afternoon, and we recently had wildfire smoke, which is a very rare event to have that come out to the East Coast because we manage our forests better, but we survived that as well, so we can handle anything. But outside of that, today I have two quick updates for you all on the show that I think are very pertinent to discuss. They may not be directly conservation related, but there is some proximity. What am I alluding to? I'm going to talk about lab-grown meat and the FDA giving approval to lab-grown chicken pertaining to two companies and some of the concerns with that ethically, financially, and culturally, and what that would potentially do in terms of uprooting and displacing farmers and ranchers from conservation. That's very problematic. And we're also going to talk about ESG. ESG is very much related to conservation. It's forcing behaviors and the betters in charge of government and even some incorporations who are not really in close proximity to conservation decisions want to lecture to us about how to steward the environment better. And there's an interesting update with that, which I'll go into with BlackRock CEO Larry Fink saying he doesn't want to use the term anymore. I'm going to explain why that is the case. But these two stories... While not conservation directly, do impact conservation in some capacity. Let's break it down today on the program. Last fall, the Food and Drug Administration, better known as the FDA, gave the green light to several companies to start producing and manufacturing animal cultured cells or cultured meat in the form of beef, chicken, what have you. Two of those companies in question are called Upside Foods and Good Meats. And Good Meats is a subsidiary of Eat Just, which is a plant-based derivative company pushing people to eat vegan or plant-based options, so to speak. But both companies have received approval to explore lab-grown chicken. That was the big story last week. One company that I alluded to, Good Meats, is working with local chef, he's a renowned global chef, Jose Andres, to unveil lab-grown chicken in some of his D.C.-based restaurants. And I'm going to try to unpack both of that. So the first company I alluded to, Upside Foods. Who is backing this group and what is their intention here with lab-grown meat? Mind you, I am fine with companies coming out of the woodwork, innovating, offering solutions, but I'm a little concerned about what this company wants to do, who's backing them, and is this really a true free market enterprise? So Upside Foods is backed by several entities, seven primary investors. And if you're looking for where I'm deriving this from or wondering where I'm deriving this from, I'm looking at a website called Crunchbase, which tells us to the public 
Uh, for the most part, there are some premium features that you can't access, but it tells you top of mind who are the top investors here. So I look at Crunchbase and Upside Foods and who's backing them. A primary investor, I don't know if I've ever seen this before, one such entity listed is the Department of Agriculture, which I don't think I've ever seen, to my knowledge, when I've done all this type of research, the USDA listed as an investor. And mind you, the government shouldn't be an investor. That's where the private sector works best. And they're the only people, they're the only entity truly that should be investing. And I'm very skeptical of so-called government investments like this because it often invites subsidies, control, lack of innovation, and gives unfair advantages to certain companies over others. So Upside Foods, in addition to USDA, who is also a backer? Bill Gates. Now, I know people might be thinking, oh, gosh, a conservative like Gabriella attacking Bill Gates. She's trying to be contrarian. She's, you know, an alarmist here. I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I look to see some of his past musings on where he wants agriculture to go, his climate activism, what have you. And in 2021, Bill Gates famously said, I would like to see, and I'm merely paraphrasing, I would like to see developed countries go 100% synthetic beef, meaning create beef out of cultured animal cells. And so now that I know that two of these primary investors are the USDA under this administration and Bill Gates, what is the overall goal of this? Is this truly to offer, let's say, more humane approaches to harvesting meat? Is it going to lead to more ethical, sustainable farming practices? Is it going to displace farmers and ranchers altogether? Is it to fight the so-called climate crisis? And I see, unfortunately, a lot of these platitudes and talking points that want this to be a vehicle to shift away from farming, ranching, and animal husbandry. And it's not because I'm paid by big meat or farming and ranching interest. I don't get any money from those people, full disclosure. If I did, I would let you guys know, but I don't get any money from this. This is just me drawing conclusions from interviews I've done, ranchers and farmers I've befriended, even seeing, you know, what opponents say about these industries. I look at it holistically and I tend to favor the farmers and ranchers, especially the independent ones, when they tell me and warn me against you know, this kind of alarmist rhetoric coming from these alternate sources and these alternatives. What is the big picture? What is their true goal? And they want to unfortunately displace farmers and ranchers and the wider agriculture, animal husbandry practices from the landscape altogether. That is what their press releases have said. These two company websites aren't shy about their goal to address climate change, more so fight the so-called climate crisis. And they want to kind of reimagine meat eating if they're not forcing us to eat so-called plant-based burgers, which are not very good for you. And in terms of how it's reared and all that, and there is a little bit of differences with so-called cultured animal proteins, but there are a lot of ethical, environmental, and financial concerns to have of this emerging practice, so to speak. One conservative estimate I saw said that this will not come to market mass production more specifically, for another seven to 10 years. They say we have a climate crisis. And if there's an urgency to move away from eating beef and chicken because of the so-called methane concerns that are emitted from animal husbandry and animal agriculture, wouldn't this be produced sooner? So that's where I'm skeptical initially. I want to talk about the environmental footprint of these alternative facilities that want to replace agriculture and animal husbandry. UC Davis put out a very poignant study that kind of pours cold water on the viability and scalability of lab-grown meat as it relates to beef. 
they said that this practice actually emits carbon emissions or global warming, exacerbates global warming, what have you, 25 times that of beef harvesting and the process that goes into processing beef, rearing it, putting it out for mass production. And because it is very hard to scale and it's being produced in smaller quantities, the product right now, if it is going to come out, let's say in restaurants first and then ultimately sold in supermarkets, it's not going to be a cheap product. They say this lab-grown chicken is going to be on par with organic chicken, which costs $20 per pound. They say this lab-grown meat product through Upside Foods and Good Meats will cost about the same as organic chicken by pound. How is that scalable and how is that cost-effective? Because they keep saying these meat alternatives are cheaper, better for your health, better for the environment, yet when they're going to be first initially released in this limited quantity through restaurants and such, they're not going to be cheaper. That's not even putting into consideration the composition of this meat and the so-called health benefits. I'm thinking as someone who is mindful of what I put into my body, I want to eat animal protein that is directly sourced or as close as I can get sourced to nature or to sustainable practices and farms and what have you, or through hunting and fishing. And I look at lab-grown meat and I think to myself, what additives are going to be introduced into this to achieve a similar quality, taste similarity, proteins, phytonutrients, different qualities to make it on par with conventional meat. I can't believe I have to say conventional meat, but conventional red meat. What has to be introduced or added to this? What additives are going to be to this? Because this is not a purely meat product, even though it is being derived from animal cells. What is going to be added to this? Are these additives healthy? We have to ask ourselves if that is the case. And I want to discuss kind of findings from the National Institutes of Health. Mind you, people have grown distrustful of entities like the NIH. But I want to read for you what their concerns are concerning red meat trying to be replicated through this fashion. Let's see what they have to say on this subject. And I'm pulling from a study that was 2020, 2021 for your reading pleasure. And this is what I was able to find from their study. So the NIH says that cultured meat aspires to be biologically equivalent to traditional meat. Traditional meat is nutritionally dense food containing high quality proteins, vitamins, minerals, and other important nutrients. It is of interest to note that many compounds that accumulate in the muscle are not produced in the muscle, but derived from animal feed components, which have been digested and modified by non-muscle organs. Unless specifically added to the culture medium and taken up by cells, these compounds would be absent in cultured meat, influencing processes, determining flavor, texture, color, and nutritional aspects. And their conclusion said this, in most diets, meat provides a large share of various B group vitamins, especially B12 the latter vitamin is synthesized exclusively by microorganisms, bacteria, and archaea, and then absorbed and utilized by animals while plants rarely contain considerable amounts of B12. Hence, people following plant-based diets need to take vitamin B supplements in order to fulfill their dietary needs. If cultured meat is to be regarded as a substitute for traditional meat, it is vital that it contains vitamin B12. With regard to tissue engineering Vitamins are necessary in the media for optimal cell proliferation, but it is not clear whether the uptake in media results from media results rather in levels of vitamins in cultured meat comparable to traditional meat. Furthermore, uptake of B12 requires a binding protein 
enabling transport across cell membrane. This can potentially present an additional challenge to achieving adequate levels of B12 in cultured muscle tissue. Here's their conclusion, rather. However, the technological and economical feasibility of these solutions, especially at large scale, can be questioned. With regard to nutritional value, we illustrated the long trajectory of additional research that is needed before the composition of cultured meat could resemble traditional meat, as well as the complexity of the medium composition needed to achieve this. This will not only add to the cost of the medium, but also increase the environmental footprint of the entire process. What the UC Davis study essentially said, this is what is being backed up by the NIH study here. In processed meat products, most of the challenges mentioned may above be overcome by the simple addition of texturizing ingredients, colorants, flavorings, and nutrients in order to remedy the sensorial and nutritional properties. However, this decreases consumer acceptability, which is why you see 50% of Americans outright reject lab-grown meat or say that they will forego trying it altogether. From uh, AP Orc, which is the study that has been used often to gauge consumer opinions about electric vehicles, climate trends, etc., Further, in the absence of defined and properly communicated production process, it is currently impossible to gauge all potential issues related to the sensorial aspects and nutritional value of cultured meat products entering the market in the forthcoming year. So you have scientific inquiry there saying, as interpreted, lab-grown meat will be extremely hard to scale, extremely hard and difficult to market to the public, no matter how glitzy the PR campaigns are. It won't measure up to conventional meat, red meat products. And there's a lot of nutritional value that would be absent. You'd have to insert B12 components into lab-grown meat to achieve the same nutritional value as you would elsewhere in natural meat. And I want to read for you before we move on to our next subject, what Chef Andrew Gould said. We want to hear from what chefs have to say. Chef Jose Andres said, yes, I'm on board with lab-cultured meat, but he's a hypocrite. He engages in doublespeak I, I understand he does great humanitarian work, feeds people in war-torn regions. Great. However, his messaging on domestic fronts, on the climate issue, he engages in doublespeak, and he likes to get exempted from the climate policies he's advocating for. Case in point, Chef Andres has said we need cleaner kitchens. I don't know if he's outright. I couldn't find any supporting evidence he's been in support of gas stove bans. But his climate activism largely calls for shifting away from that or people he aligns with rather call for shifting away from gas stoves. But he requested an exemption in Palo Alto for one of his restaurants in the city because they have said, we're going to go full electric. We're going to electrify our stoves, but he requested an exemption himself. So it's okay for him to get an exemption from gas stove bans, but the wider public cannot have it in new construction or even existing construction if they move it to retroactively ban it. But another chef that countered, this is Chef Andrew Gruel. Chef Gruel, we've had on the podcast before. He creates really fascinating recipes. He was behind the slapfish concept. He sold that recently. Him and his wife sold that. And now he is doing kind of independent concepts in Southern California and is looking to expand elsewhere with that. He has a new restaurant called Calico Fish House. And he tweeted about lab-grown meat. His concerns, he said, lab-grown meat is a danger to both our food system and our economy. The energy required for production is outrageous. It can only survive on government subsidies. It's full of additives and doesn't mimic the helpful qualities of meat at all. Scary stuff that he is quoted as saying. I laid out similar concerns to Chef Gruel, nutritionally, economically, and culturally. 
what this entails. You can do your own research. And my opposition to this doesn't mean I want the government to forbid this from coming to market. But I'm also very concerned that because it's going to be heavily subsidized, is it truly reflective of market demands? Are consumers going to follow the trend here? Seeing where plant-based meat or plant-based derivatives, so to speak, have ended, how they've kind of emerged as a fad and they need these government subsidies and kind of these inflated puff pieces and campaigns to tout their so-called benefits, I see this going the way of plant-based meat. It's not going to be scaled properly. It's going to be a fad. It's going to be very expensive. It's not that good for you. I follow the trends. I look to see where things go and I base my assumptions on what has come to market and fallen and not come to fruition rather and say and can predict here as I did at Town Hall VIP today that this is just going to be a fad. People are willing and free to do it. Of course, I want to see people try their socks off with lab-grown meat. You want to do it, by all means, go for it if you have the money and the interest and the need to eat it. But conventional meat eaters and omnivores like myself are going to forego this trend. There is no appetite for it as it currently stands. Even when it's going to be scaled to mass production, I don't see this replacing meat. It's maybe a supplement, but it's not going to replace conventional agriculture practices. And we shouldn't discount the farmers and ranchers who feed us and clothe us and the tertiary and secondary practices and benefits that their operations have. A lot of people think farming and ranching is horrible for the landscape. No, that is not true. We have talked about it on my Conservation Nation series. I've brought on people. People are more comfortable knowing that their beef is reared sustainably, and it can be on these operations. So I am out, personally speaking, for lab-grown meat, but that is the dynamic at play. You've heard me talk about different interests, give both arguments, so to speak, and we're now going to dip into this other topic that I think is also very important Environmental, social, and governance practices are going to creep into conservation decisions. And I have talked about ESG. I've brought on different guests about ESG. ESG is not a market force at work. ESG is a so-called financial investment strategy to insert non-financial or non-pecuniary factors into investment decisions. People are free to do this. Like I said, with lab-grown meat, electric vehicles, if people want to willingly do this, great. But the government is dictating that these factors be considered and on par with financial factors in terms of investment decisions. But ESG is not just concentrated to the corporate boardrooms and financial decisions. It is an extension from my observation into this in the last year and a half that I've been researching this very heavily. It's an extension of progressive politics and even preservationist environmental philosophy as it relates to the E-prong, environmental prong of ESG. But ESG has faced a lot of pushback on the E-prong, the S-prong, and the G-prong. Harvard and other reputable sources have said there are low return on investments through ESG funds. And the ESG movement is facing opposition and it's becoming increasingly unpopular. So much that we see one of its biggest proponents, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, said he is no longer himself using the term ESG, environmental, social, and governance, because according to Axios, it has become politically weaponized and he's ashamed to be part of the debate on the issue. And they say why it matters. It matters because BlackRock is the largest financial asset, global asset manager, and they have touted ESG. They say that here at home, you need to shift away from oil and gas investment, but 
being invested in China and a holder, a 7.2% holder in PetroChina, they have two messages for oil and gas investments, one against it here at home, another in favor of it when it comes to their investments with PetroChina and their holdings in PetroChina. Unsurprisingly, ESG induces hypocrisy. It is not consistently applied. It's very much controversial, and it strays away from the market. BlackRock manages $2.9 trillion in investments. And his comments, although he has kind of peeled back and walked back from these comments, but he was recorded as saying at a recent Aspen Institute's summit that, I'm ashamed of being part of this conversation. When I write these investment letters, it was never meant to be a political statement. They were written to identify long-term issues to our long-term investors, he told Aspen Institute's idea. But when pressed about his statement, he said, I never said I was ashamed in terms of his walking back of these comments. He said incorrectly, I'm not ashamed. I do believe in conscientious capitalism. That is just a word salad. It means nothing and it strays away from free market capitalism or free enterprise, which is a more preferable term that people should use. Like when they're adding these descriptors to capitalism and free enterprise, you should scratch your head because they're trying to dilute capitalism with this monstrosity of corporatism also realized through ESG. This is crony capitalism. This is not free market environmentalism. And he's added as saying, I'm not going to use the word ESG because it's been misused by the far left and the far right, he added. So he was trying to walk back his comments, but he said the word has become sullied and very dirty to use because of Republican pushback. So that signals to me that state pushback to ESG overreach, whether in the corporate boardrooms, state pensions, and even as a political ideology, it's receiving a lot of support, this pushback. Republicans have found a recipe for pushback. And ESG, not only have we been pushing this back at Independent Women's Forum and other groups that I've worked at, other organizations out there like Consumers Research, which is helmed by Will Hild, and I recently went to one of their anti-ESG summits, so I can speak to their work and advocacy. They've been holding Larry Fink and other proponents of ESG, holding their feet to the fire, more specifically, and they should be credited with helping to orchestrate and carry out this pushback in concert with states, attorneys generals, state financial officers, grassroots activists, and even private companies. They've been involved in stakeholder meetings and what have you. And Will Hild was quoted as saying in, in relation to this Axios article, he said, after we exposed ESG for the scam that it truly is, one of the main architects of the practice, Larry Fink, BlackRock CEO, said he's ashamed to be part of the debate. His scheme has been exposed and he knows it. But Will caveats his tweet with this. Ignore his hollow backtracking. He and his ESG cronies like Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan are intent on forcing their far left agenda onto the American people and their main tool is ESG. So I have documented for the past year and a half, as I alluded to earlier, that ESG has been around since like 2005, 2006. It was first touted by the United Nations. It's been embraced by the World Economic Forum and all these other globally focused entities, which claim to be for markets and claim to be for private enterprise, but they're not, given their goals that they've laid out and how they want to restrict ownership, restrict private property rights, and then some, and force us to stop eating meat, what have you. But in recent years, pushback to ESG from Republicans, from companies, from industries like the firearms industry, oil and gas, and others, like nonprofits that deal in the social issue space, they have pushed back against ESG because they see that it is inconsistently applied. 
It can be easily co-opted, especially in terms of the scoring mechanisms that are used. It can be weaponized by political opponents to make certain industries disfavorable and not attractive for investments. That's what they do for conservation practices. There's even an effort to push under the e-banner biodiversity goals, natural rewilding goals, which are even more hard to enforce. And I've talked about that at length, stemming from a Montreal pact that was formulated and enacted at the UN at their recent Montreal summit on biodiversity and how they want to force people to be conservationists through these directives. But companies, for instance, like Toyota are already practicing sustainability without direction and insistence of ESG. They don't need ESG to look to for inspiration. And why should companies that don't do anything in conservation have a mandate to do it? Like if they're removed from it, I don't want them to virtue signal about being good conservationists and talking about how great they are with conservation when some of their leadership or some of the groups they support politically are fighting against true conservation efforts, undermining hunting, undermining fishing. So I don't want to be lectured by people who claim to be conservationists about conservation when they are removed from the decisions and they're perhaps working directly to undermine true conservation. That is my qualm with ESG. I have done a lot of research on the subject at Independent Women's Forum, a little bit at Town Hall, and I can get you up to speed about it and explain to you why it's not market-oriented. It'll undermine true conservation. It is emblematic of a preservationist environmental philosophy and thinking and why it'll upend environmental stewardship here in this country. I have all the resources. So head over to Independent Women's Forum, look under my byline, and you will find all my musings and research into this very subject. But it's interesting that uh, there's more pushback. A lot of industry experts have said, the economist even said, going back to Larry Fink, rejecting the term going forward or wanting to rebrand it. Other ESG proponents have been on the record saying, like The Economist and others, that it is necessary to rebrand ESG. We can't be referring to environmental, social, and governance. We can still support the goals of fighting climate change and doing this and moving away from animal husbandry and animal agriculture and moving away from fossil fuels, but we have to rename it. So to me, that's a concession from ESG proponents saying that they're not confident in their movement, in their principles, in their actions. They are scared. If they have to rebrand, it means that they are watching what ESG opponents are doing. Take Larry Fink's comments for what you will. He tried to walk back at it, as I mentioned, but that's not a good sign if the BlackRock CEO is conceding that ESG as a movement, and as it's named, is being called into question, and it's sullied and dirty. Make it what you will, his comments. This just means we have to closely monitor and continue to keep tabs on the cracks coming through ESG, because this is not a sustainable thinking. It's not a sustainable movement. It's not a sustainable investment philosophy and the cracks and the renaming efforts and the admission that pushback is working goes to show that they're in a very weak position. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.